Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. My mind is a little more scattered today than normal. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, isn't there? A lot of things going on in our lives. So many things going on. And isn't it a blessing? The Bible says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That in a world of constant change, Jesus alone remains changeless. His Word will stand forever. It's true. It's certain. I want to speak to you today on certainties. Certainties. And we're in John chapter 16, the week before last, before Brother uh, Hamilton was here. We were in John 16. We're going to start today in verse 15. And I want you to, to hope you have a Bible in front of you, John chapter 16. We're going to be reading in verse 15. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. And do your best to really pay attention. How many of you sometimes when the preacher is reading the text, your mind wanders? Yes, 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 yes. I can see it. Yes. Let's try to really focus on this text because there are going to be some really cool things that we see in here today. Uh, the Bible says in verse 15, All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore saith I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Here we have the Trinity very clearly. Look at verse 16. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. See, they're questioning. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And he said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy." A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that is born, or for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day, Ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and... I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I come out, came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things? And needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now look at what Jesus says to him, verse 31. Jesus answered them, 
Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Lord, help us to understand your word today. What an important passage this is. Help us to have a good and a clear understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you about some certainties. The first certainty we already mentioned is the certainty of the Trinity. The certainty of the Trinity. And this is something that was battled throughout Christianity, throughout the ages. It's never really been in dispute. First John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, that's not confusing. The, the Godhead is one what? God. Three who's? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three. Amen? So the certainty of the Trinity. So there's the oneness Pentecostal movement, the, um, the apostolic movement. They don't believe in the Trinity. They have, a, they have a very convoluted understanding of Scripture. Jesus would be very confused if there were not three persons being identified. When the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to show you things of Jesus. Why? Because the Father gave it all to Jesus, and now the, the God, the Holy Spirit, is going to show it unto us. Three persons of the Godhead clearly identified in this text. One of the things that we have to be sure of is what we believe. Amen? We need to really know what we believe. I got a call this morning from a preacher in North Carolina, Brother Craig Peak. And uh, how many of you have met Brother Peak? Would you raise your hand? If you have met Brother Peak, you will never forget it. I've got to get him up here to preach for us. Um, Dalton Robertson said, if you want to understand Craig Peak, it looks like the captain from Gilligan's Island swallowed Hulk Hogan. That's, that's what he looks like. He's a power lifter. Um, he, he is, again, Dalton would say he's as country as a butter bean sandwich. He is, when you think of a hillbilly, it is Craig Peak, and he's just one of my favorite people in the world. He called me this morning. He said, Brother Alter, he said, I, I was listening to some of your tapes. I guess they're CDs now. I was listening to some of your CDs. And you remind me of an old red-nosed pit bull I had one time. He said, you get hold of something, you don't let it go. <laughs> he said, I just want to encourage you, just, just don't back up. Don't apologize, just stand. He called me to tell me that this morning. Isn't that a blessing? Man, I was so encouraged. Of course, I laughed my whole way through the... <laughs> I'm not even close to how country he is. He's awesome. Um, just, he's just such a blessing, and, and he just encouraged me today. Everything's going on in the world. He wanted to call a preacher friend and say, just stand, just stand. Aren't you glad there are some things that we can believe, that we can know, and things that we can stand on? The first one here is the certainty of the Trinity. The second is, this is so funny, the certainty of the disciples' uncertainty. Now, if you have been in my Sunday school class for years, and you've come on Wednesday nights, some of this will be review for you. If you've not been involved in those things, there are some things that you are probably very confused about in the Gospels. Why? Because there's great confusion in Christianity about this. There's great misunderstanding and confusion in Christianity. Not because the Bible is unclear, but because, honestly, preachers don't really preach the Bible. They talk about the Bible. They don't really tell you what the Bible says. Would you all agree with that? In most cases, they're, gonna, they're, they're worried about you. They're going to deal with what's going on in your life, and they're going to find a verse that will try and help you get through your day. Whatever. 
but that's not what we do here at Grace Baptist. I don't care about your day. No, that's not true. It's, if, if we actually preach and teach what the Bible says, then you'll know how to get through your day. Isn't that right? A lot better than I could ever tell you. What we have to get here is the disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Do you all see that? Let's look at it again. Verse 16, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. All right, so what, what is he talking about? Jesus is going to die on the cross, and he's going to ascend to the Father. They don't have any idea about that. They don't understand it. How do we know that? How do we know that they didn't understand it? Look at the next verse. Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. What is, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Okay, so did, are, how many of you agree that they did not know what he was talking about? All right. And yet, almost every preacher would preach that the disciples were going around Galilee and Judea preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is so much confusion in Christianity because people simply do not know how to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what happens is, just as the disciples were uncertain here, Christianity becomes uncertain, and what is our job? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to heal the sick? Are we supposed to feed the poor? Is that what the church is supposed to do? Is the church's job, more than anything else, to take care of the physical needs of people? Is that what our job is? Because they go to Matthew chapter 25, Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my children, you've done it unto me. And so there are churches everywhere that are thinking, our job is to go out and feed the poor. Why do they say that? Because they do not understand the disciples' uncertainty. So let's go through some verses just at this particular part of the sermon. And I want, you, I want this to be very clear. I want this to be crystal clear in your mind. The New Testament did not begin until the death of Jesus Christ. If you're confused on this, you're going to have all kinds of doctrinal error in your thinking. You can't understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if you misunderstand this. The New Testament did not begin until the death of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ say at the Last Supper? This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Keep your place. Put a marker here in John 16. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Now, if you have been on Wednesday night and you have been in Sunday school and you've heard some of this, turn in your Bible anyway. Hebrews chapter 9. I can't, be any, I can't be any plainer on this. Most of Christianity is very confused on this. And you might be sitting out there thinking, well, you're awfully arrogant to think that you can correct most of Christianity. Let me say something. I can correct most of Christianity on this because all I'm going to do is read the Bible. If you disagree with what I'm going to say, you have to disagree with the Bible, okay? So arrogant, bold, whatever, uh, I am very bold to say that if you disagree with what I'm going to read right now, you disagree with the Bible. Now, I don't think there's anyone here that disagrees with me, 
This is for people who are listening on the Internet or whatever down the road, okay? you got to understand, most of Christianity disagrees with this. And when you correct most of Christianity, then there is the accusation of arrogance. All I know is I, I'm just reading the text, all right? Now, how many of you are thinking, well, just read the text then. Stop talking. Okay, let's look at it. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9. And look at verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. This is Jesus, mediator. He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, that would be the Old Testament, right? They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. You see that? For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So, uh, I write out a will. And I say, I leave half of my goods to Jacob, and I leave half of my goods to Lydia. That's my will. All right? That means nothing until I die. So, Jacob, there's still time to write you out. <laughs> That's the point. Is that right? Isn't that the point? What does it do? It gives you some control. It gives you some control. What's happening in this text? The Testament, the Old Testament, was of force until the testator died. When did the testator die? Who's the testator? Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. When he died on the cross, now the New Testament comes. Now the New Testament is of force. And what is that New Testament? It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. That blood... The power of that blood was attested to by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's why our salvation is belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died because we're sinners and He was sinless. He was buried to prove that He was dead and He stayed dead for three days and three nights. Then he rose from the dead, proving that he is God and always will be God forever. Amen? They said, prove to us that you are God, the Pharisees. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. His resurrection was the answer to the challenge of his deity. All right? So that, that New Testament... That gospel of the New Testament, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that did not begin until after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? But here's what people say. Well, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross. In the New Testament, they were looking back to the cross. How many of you ever heard someone say that? Show it to me in the Bible. It's just not in there. There are pictures of the cross all through the Bible. But a clear understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not to be found, especially among the disciples. They certainly did not understand it. Go with me to Luke chapter 19. And again, people really misunderstand the purpose and nature, function, members of the church... 
because they don't understand what the New Testament church is. All right, so this is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 19. It's right before He goes to the cross. His time has come. So um, look at verse 37. And when He was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, let me ask you a question. Was he the king? Yes. Jesus Christ is the king. This is a triumphal entry. And they're claiming there's peace in heaven, there's peace everywhere. Has that happened? No. Let's read on. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. What's he telling them? The whole creation worships me. It's very interesting. Verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it saying, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. So now blindness comes to the Jews. Is that right? Go back to Luke chapter 18. So remember what has just happened. The disciples, are they know that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that Jesus is about to begin his kingdom. That's what they're excited about. But look at what Jesus had just told them He was going to do. Verse 31. Then He took unto Him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. What things? Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected. He's pierced. He, he bears in His body the reproach of the world. Psalm 22, where they spit on him, they revile him. I see all my bones. All of those prophecies. Verse 32, for he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. Now, I want you to think about something. How many of you believe that that happened? But it hadn't happened yet, had it? And so many people believe that all of this time the disciples have been preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are functioning and operating as a New Testament church, preaching and baptizing and observing the ordinances. That's what people believe is happening as Jesus Christ is with His disciples. How many of you agree that's what people believe has happened? Now, Jesus has just told them what's going to happen. Is that right? Look at the next verse. And they praised God and said, this is what we have been preaching. <laughs> Let's read this verse, verse 34 out loud. Ready? And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. So let me ask you, 
were the disciples preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ before this? They couldn't have been. My question is, why is there so much confusion in Christianity about this? I don't have the answer other than people don't teach the Bible rightly. Well, let's, you say, well, that's just, just one passage. Okay, go with me to Mark chapter 9. So if you remember the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, look at verse 2, Mark chapter 9 and verse 2. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became, sh became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, that's Elijah, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. So he didn't know what to say, so he said it. Right? That's what's going on here. And so God speaks from heaven, and there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Peter, shut up. Listen to Jesus. <laughs> and suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man for no man anymore, save Jesus only as only with themselves. So Moses and Elijah left. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen. Now look, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And wouldn't you think that if they'd been preaching the death, burial, and resurrection, they'd say, okay, we know when to say it. Right? Look at what it says. Verse 10. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one another what the rising of the dead should mean. What's he talking about? What is he talking about? All right, go to John chapter 20. So both of those texts, one took place about halfway through Jesus' ministry. The other one took place at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before the triumphal entry. Now, here is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the, the morning of the resurrection. John chapter 20. Verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, the other and the other disciple did outrun Peter. I love that. It's one of my guys are competitive, aren't they? John, God through the Holy Spirit has John write down that John was faster than Peter. <laughs> and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. So John, a little reticent. He just stops and looks. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the clothes, the linen clothes lie. So he was slow. Peter was slow, but he was bold. He's not stopping. He just barrels right into the sepulcher and there are the clothes lying. And look at what it says. Verse 7. 
and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Now that means that he's coming back. That's a blessing. And then went in other, or then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed that the tomb was empty. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Can I ask you a question? Is that an unclear statement? Then why is it that this, what I'm telling you right now, is almost never explained? It's almost never explained. I don't know. I think part of it is um, there are basically two views of Scripture among Bible-believing conservative Christians whether Baptist or Presbyterian or Episcopal or Methodist, among conservative Christians, those who would believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, okay, those who would believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. There are basically two views. There is one view that Jesus Christ is going to return, that the church is going to be taken out, that there's going to be a tribulation on earth, and then Israel is going to be recovered into the land of Israel and they are going to be judged and chastened, and finally Israel is going to receive Jesus Christ. After that happens, Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth, He's going to judge the world, and then He's going to rule and reign on the earth in power for a thousand years, and we are going to rule and reign with Him. Now, how many of you recognize that's the position of this church? That's what we believe. But not every saved person who loves the Lord and loves His Word believes that. Most of Protestant Christianity would hold to either something called amillennialism or postmillennialism. Amillennialism means that there really isn't a millennium, that that's just spiritual language. The other is that Jesus Christ will return after the millennium. Okay? Why would that happen? What we are going to do, they believe, is that all of the promises for Israel in the Old Testament, since Israel rejected Jesus, now all of those promises belong to the church. And so now what the church is supposed to do is take those commands that God gave Israel, go into Canaan land and capture the land and overcome and occupy, all of those military terms, national terms, all those apply to the church. So now what we are supposed to do as Christians, we are supposed to take over the government and bring peace to the world through righteous laws, subdue the earth, bring the whole earth, every nation in the earth, under the rule and the dominion of Scripture, so Jesus Christ can return and reign. Now, you got to understand this. That is what most of Christianity believes. Does that sound crazy to you? It really does because it has no place in Scripture. You can't find it in the Bible. You have to, for every one verse about the first coming of Christ, there are eight verses about the second coming of Christ. All right? One third of your Bible is prophecy about what's coming. One third of it. What they do in order to come to that position, the position, the last position that I just described, is they allegorize one third of the Bible. What they tell you is, well, the Bible doesn't really mean that Israel is going to be gathered together. That's spiritual Israel. That's us. You see, they say those words don't really mean what they say. There's a spiritual meaning behind them. That's false, folks. 
uh, and we'll, we'll, let me just finish this little section with this passage. Go to Revelation chapter 2. That teaching is based on the belief that the church replaced Israel, that we now are spiritual Israel. Real Israel is done away with. There really are no more Jews. Now the, all the promises for Israel now belong to the church, and we are spiritual Jews. All right, here's what Jesus said about that. Revelation 2, verse 9. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The Holocaust happened because Lutheranism believed that the church had replaced Israel. The Holocaust could not have happened without Martin Luther's errors in doctrine. Very important that you get that. It's very important that you understand that. And, and the hatred of the Jews, it, we've taken the time before, you do it yourself, Google Judensau, Judensau. And what you'll find are the churches in Germany that there are like, like gargoyle-type statues, images, on the tops of the churches of Jews, and you can tell they're Jews by a certain shape of their hat, nursing on a pig. And they put that on their churches to keep Jews from coming in. That anti-Semitism, one of Martin Luther's last books was a book. I have a copy of it in my office. I've read it. It's called The Jews and Their Lies. And it was all about removing all the rights from Jews, removing their property, only allowing them to do menial labor like sweeping out barns, living in barns. They hated the Jews. Where does all of this come from? Well, when Pilate tried to release Jesus... He said, you can release one. They said, give us Barabbas. They said, crucify Jesus. Let his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads. And so by that verse, these people who believe in what's called replacement theology, this covenant theology, post-millennialism, amillennialism, what they believe is that now the Jews are an accursed people. They've been rejected. We don't believe that. The Bible says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Bible says that, that I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Because of our theology, we are the ones who stand beside Israel. We are the ones who would defend with our lives the life of an unbelieving Jew. Why? Because they're God's people. They're God's people. And here's the deal. You and I could never be saved if God hadn't given the gospel to the Jews. If God hadn't given the word of God to the Jews. And so it's very important that we understand that there are these two different groups in Christianity. So how did this understanding, this misunderstanding of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the disciples were preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how did that get into our churches, those of us who believe every word of God is true? How many of you believe it's all true? Right? We believe every word of God is true. We don't allegorize the text. We take it literally. We see a distinction between Israel and the church. Amen? We see all of that clearly. How has this gotten into our churches? Because most of the seminaries and Bible colleges for years were fundamentalist. They weren't necessarily Baptist. And in these fundamentalist schools, you had all of these Protestant teachers and when you look at the commentaries, I could take you into my office. I have, I have uh, a wall and a half of commentaries. And almost every one of them, almost every one of them would teach 
either amillennialism or postmillennialism. You can find almost no commentaries on Isaiah that understand that it's talking about what God is going to do with Israel. It's very interesting. Why is that? Because Satan has done such a great job of causing people not to believe every word of God is true and every word of God is pure. So what I wanted you to see, let's go back to John 16. Now, how many of you understand that there really is confusion about this topic? How many of you also see there's no reason for confusion about the topic? We just read the verses. Let me ask you, did the disciples understand the death, burial, and resurrection before the death, burial, and resurrection? Clearly, no. Clearly, no. And yet, I, I have this discussion probably once a month with, a, with an independent Baptist preacher who doesn't understand this at all. They don't have any concept of it. it. And it's, again, simply because of the way things are taught. And here's where this becomes important to you and me. How do we function in the New Testament church? What is our job? What are we supposed to do? Our job is to lead people to Jesus Christ. To lead people to Jesus Christ. I know I told you to go to John 16, but let's make this clear. Go to Luke chapter 24. I told you my brain was scattered. I warned you. Okay, so this is after his death, burial, and resurrection. This is after he meets with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now he has appeared to his disciples. He's found them fishing. He's made them breakfast. All right, look at what it says. Verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. So he had told them, but they didn't understand, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding. Would you mark that word then in verse 45? These time words are so important. That means they didn't understand these things before then. Is that clear to you? Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This is a shift because in Matthew chapter 10, He said, to Go not into the way of the Samaritans, go not into the way of the Gentiles, but only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, go ye, and preach, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a shift from the Old Testament economy to the New Testament. And what happened to make that shift? He died on the cross and rose from the dead. So now our job is not to gather nations together. Our job is not to control or to conquer nations. There are people who do that. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Any of you ever heard of holy wars? That's where this comes from. Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. You see that? So what's going on? What is the kingdom of heaven? It's Israel. It's the kingdom that Jesus Christ is coming to establish. All right? That's the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's in you. 
The Bible makes that very clear. I'm not going to take the time to go through those verses. Uh, Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The book of Luke, say, say not, lo here, lo there, for the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You can't see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is a physical, literal kingdom where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth. And the Bible says that from the days of John the Baptist, people are taking it by violence and by force. Right? If you have a modern translation of the Bible, maybe an NIV, do you know, what, you know how it translates this verse? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is advancing violently. How many of you think that's a different understanding of the text? What is that? That's a theology coming through in a translation as opposed to actually just translating the words. And so what has happened in churches is people don't really understand what they are supposed to do. You have, you have conservative Christians that want to take over the government. You have other Christians who think that, well, let's not do any of that. Our job is just to help feed the poor. And these are the people that are laying aside um, doctrine, laying aside standards. They're, they're accepting gay marriage. They're accepting anything that they want to do, right? And what are they doing? They're feeding the poor. Because they do not understand or believe every word of God. So if we're going to know what we're supposed to do, if we're going to understand our place in this world and our job and what's coming, we have to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Can we all say it? All of you wanna people, you ready? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, so the Bible can be rightly divided or it can be wrongly divided. When you wrongly divide it, you end up killing people in the Crusades. It's very interesting. You end up killing people in the Hundred Years' War or the Thirty Years' War. Right? Because people do not understand how to rightly divide the Word of Truth. We must do that. Why? Because we don't want to be ashamed before God. We must do it rightly. Okay? So, number one, I've only got nine points. Don't worry. Number one... The certainty of the Trinity. Number two, the certainty, or the certainty of the disciples' uncertainty. Number three, the certainty of the Lord's timelessness. The, the certainty of the Lord's timelessness. Are you ready for this? I love this. Matthew, or John chapter 16. You're going to have to listen fast now so I can finish this. Verse 16, a little while and you, you shall not see me. And again, a little while... And you shall see me because I go to the Father. Now, this is very interesting. They didn't understand this little while. God uses in this text, he uses a little while seven times. Isn't that interesting? Seven times. God's number of perfection. A little while. What does that mean? God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. And what is so interesting to me is, look at what he says. In a little while you see me no more. Verse 16. A little while ye shall not see me. In a little while you shall see me because I go to the Father. So in a little while. That little while, he's telling them, I'm going to rise from the dead. You're going to see me for a little while. Then I'm going to go to my Father and you're going to see me again. And that would be after they die, right? But then he's going to come again in a little while. So listen to God's time. Three days and three nights is a little while. So far, 2,000 years is a little while. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? How many of you feel like time sometimes... Uh, I had a class. I had this teacher, Mr. Wilson. He talked like Bullwinkle. 
Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 2.2. When my wife cooked, she couldn't cook a can of canned corn. And he would teach, and it went on, and on, and on. And man, I would sit there and I'd want to start banging my head against the wall. It was going to be over in a little while, but it seemed like eternity. <laughs> Some of you are thinking that about this sermon, but <laughs> it is interesting. He's timeless. We are people of time. God created time not for himself. God created time for us. And then he stepped foot into time. And all through John, he keeps saying, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now his hour has come in our text. He's ready to go and die on the cross. And then what is he going to do? He's going to step outside of time again. His timelessness. His timelessness. So, number one, the certainty of the Trinity. Number two, the certainty of the disciples' uncertainty. Number three, the certainty of the, of the Lord's timelessness. Number four, the certainty of the Lord's timetable. I want you to notice there's no equivocation in this. He will die on the cross and pay for sin. He will rise again. He will ascend to the Father. He will intercede for sin. And He will return again in power and great glory. Look at John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Verse 1, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Go to Acts chapter 2. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1. Verse 9. Acts 1, verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, in a, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which said unto them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? So what were the disciples doing? Jesus went up. And here's what the disciples were doing. Apparently for an extended period of time, <laughs> right? And so these two angels come and, and look at their message. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So he's coming back. So the certainty of his timelessness, but don't worry, there is a certainty to his timetable. He has gone away. The blindness, in part, has happened to the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, Romans chapter 11. So there is a timetable that Jesus Christ is on. And you ready for this? He is not concerned about our opinion on His timetable. Amen? Your kids. When are we going to get there? I got to the bathroom. Lydia, where My back hurts. I don't want to be in the car anymore. <laughs> right? That was Jacob this morning on the way to church. That's what it was. Now, now listen. 
That's the way we are in life. God, when are you going to come back? I don't like what's happening. Supreme Court. They're mean. I don't like them. When your kids are saying, when are we going to be there? I don't want to be in the car anymore. What do you say? Shut up! No, I don't know. I don't know what you say. Eventually, that's what happens. Get out now! We're just a little. Are we there? We're almost there. <laughs> you know, you're lying. It's three more days. <laughs> it's so funny that those characteristics that we exhibit in the car—that's kind of what happens in our lives. And we need to understand that God's timetable is sure. But I want you to understand not only all of these other certainties, but the certainty of unbelief. The disciples did not believe he was going to die on the cross. They certainly didn't believe he was going to be buried and rise from the dead. And they didn't believe that he was going to ascend. None of that had anything to do with what he did. And right now, there's the majority of Christianity doesn't believe that Jesus is going to return. Their belief or unbelief has nothing to do with what he is going to do. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? Isn't that awesome? How many of you are glad that on the trip your parents didn't stop? That you made it to grandma's house? All right, you got there. Now, number six, the certainty of his overcoming the world. Look, go back to John 16. This is so cool. Verse 33, these things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So it's interesting. This chapter begins and ends with persecution. So look at verse 1 of chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. You know, there are a lot of Christians right now that would want to kill people who are against gay marriage. It's very interesting. They hate you. They hate you. Right? Well, that's, that's all going to come. That happened to these disciples over different subjects. Look at uh, verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. But why did he say that in verse 32? That's the certainty of their unbelief. When he dies, they leave. Isn't that right? Is that what happened? Why did they leave? Because they, it didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen. They thought he was going to establish his kingdom, and he died. Right? The certainty of their unbelief. But here we see he is overcoming the world. This chapter begins and ends with the promise that the lost will persecute the saved. Now, here's my message. All of that was introduction. Here's the sermon. Ready? We lose our joy when we forget His purposes. We lose our joy when we forget His purposes. Again, look with me in verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. 
In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Look at verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. We lose our joy when we forget His purposes. Now listen to this. This is very important. It is not His purpose to make your life comfortable. We've had pretty comfortable lives. I think that in the future, a Christian's life in the United States of America is going to become very uncomfortable. But His purpose is not to make you comfortable. His purpose is to comfort you. Isn't that awesome? You see, the only way, the only way that people can be saved is for Him to reserve His hand of judgment on this world. Because if He did not reserve His hand of judgment, no one else would ever be saved. And that means, that means that people will be free to do bad things. His purpose is not to make the world run so that you have no trouble. It is to strengthen you so that you can overcome the world. People are disappointed with God because they misunderstand His purposes. Here's what Jesus said, I will conquer the world at Calvary. I will rule the world at my second coming. When we get that messed up, we're in big trouble. Jesus Christ is not ruling the world right now. The Bible says in Hebrews, we see not yet all things put under His feet. Is that what the Bible says? It's not yet. It's not. Satan is the God of this world right now. Then, between His conquering the world at Calvary and His ruling the world at the second coming will be persecution, sorrow, and travail. But what's available to us? Comfort, peace, and joy. I'll make a few statements and I'll be done. First of all, we lose our peace when we become self-centered and humanistic. We lose our peace when we become self-centered and humanistic. Second, when our God exists for our pleasure, we cannot find peace and contentment that is available. It's really important that you get this. Those last two statements I got from James Knox. Listen to the first one. We lose our peace when we become self-centered and humanistic. When our God exists for our pleasure, we cannot find the peace and contentment that is available. Now listen to this right here. This is so important. Um, Laura actually pointed this out to me when I was preaching through the, the book of Galatians. Galatians 1.3. Look at Galatians 1.3 with me. Galatians 1.3, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace comes from God and from Jesus, right? That's where it comes from. This is so important. The minute I begin serving God in an advisory role, I lose my peace. God, let me tell you how I think you ought to handle this. Your kids ever said this? Dad, here's what I think you ought to do. 
Yeah, thanks for that. Right? You'd have Twinkies every for supper every night. All right? The minute I begin serving God in an advisory role, I lose my peace. And this is so important. Ready for this? Get this. Get this. Peace is the property of God. He owns it. If you want it, you've got to get it from Him. We think when we lack control, we lack peace. Because for us, peace equals control. So what's going on in the world? How many of you wish you could control what's going on at the Supreme Court? How many of you wish you could control what's going on in the world and in the culture? We're not in control, are we? When in reality, peace is a gift from the one who owns it. The Bible makes it very clear that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. One of the problems that's going on in Christianity right now is because of that post-millennial understanding, that is the concept that the world will get better and better and better until Jesus Christ returns. Now, how many of you understand it's a violation of reality? That's like evolution, right? Evolution is that we're going to evolve and, you know, that, that, you, that a higher form of life came from a lower form of life. And yet we understand that one of the laws of the universe is the law of entropy, that everything tends from order to disorder. I know that. I've been doing maintenance on my house this week. It is very interesting that over the last several years, paint did not increase on my trim. You would think that by now they could produce paint that would evolve. It's interesting, isn't it? A theology that says the world is going to get better and better and better until Jesus Christ returns, that violates reality. That violates our observation of the universe. Things tending from lower forms to higher forms violates our observation of the universe. Just as that theology leads to terrible results, that Understanding of science leads to terrible results. For you and me, our belief that God is interested in our advice leads to terrible results. What does lordship mean? The Lord is the ruler. Amen? Is He your ruler? Are you in absolute submission to where He has you in life? Or are you saying, I don't want to be here. I don't like it. Now look, I don't want to make light. If you I mean, if you got cancer, I don't like it. Right? If your back hurts, your back hurts. It's not what I'm talking about. You got to understand. You live in a fallen world, you're going to have trouble. And then, now add on to that, that you're a Christian, you're going to suffer persecution. It's going to happen. It's going to come. Is that what the Bible says? It's going to come. God didn't promise to make this world comfortable. He promised to give you comfort. He didn't promise to make the world peaceful until He returns. He promised to give you peace in the world. God didn't promise to make the world a utopia. He promised to give you joy. And if you're looking for joy and comfort and peace in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not find it. Amen? Uh, let's, let's go back. Let's, last verse. We're done. 
Last verse of John chapter 16. John chapter 16, look at verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that... What are those next two words? In me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So let me ask you this. Number one, are you saved? If you're saved, then you are in Christ. If you're not saved, then you are in the world. Do you know what is coming for you if you're in the world? Tribulation. It could just be suffering now. If you live after the return of Jesus Christ, you're going to go through a tribulation period, seven years of trouble. Jesus said, Then shall be great tribulation, such as the world has not seen since the beginning of the world. Imagine how bad that's going to be. Tribulation. You're either in Him or you're in tribulation. Amen? If you're a believer, though, you can walk in Christ or you can walk in the world. If you walk in Christ, you're going to have peace. If you walk in the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's your choice. If you want to have peace, you've got to go to the only place that you can find peace because it's His property. He owns it. You're either in Christ or you're in the world. Amen? So, are you saved? How many of you are in Christ? You know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven. You are in Christ. You know that you're saved. Praise God. If you're not in Christ yet, get in Christ. All you have to do is tell Him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve hell. You died on the cross to save me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Just, I, I, give you the, I, I receive the free gift of eternal life. I receive that. Thank you for saving me, Lord. That's, that's it. I repent. You're God. I'm not. That's what salvation is, placing your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your eternal life. And then you're placed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Then the Bible says, you say that you believe in Him, then walk even as He walked. You have to walk in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There are saved people that are li literally living in tribulation right now. Torment, tribulation, upset, turmoil. Why? Why? Because they're simply not trusting God. They're not receiving the comfort from Him that He has offered. And I hope that you'll get that comfort. If you're not saved, get saved. If you are saved, walk in Him. Realize you're not in control. He is. He is completely, completely sovereign. That doesn't mean that every evil act He does. No, 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 no. God created freedom. Man performs acts. That freedom allows us to come to Him, but that freedom also allows evil things to happen in the world. God didn't promise to make the world comfortable. He promised to give you comfort. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. This is such an important text.